Let's jump in. We're in John 14. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, turn with me there to John chapter 14. Right at the top here. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. These men, the disciples, they've given up just about everything to follow Jesus over the last three years. And this night has been really intense already. Jesus shocked them by washing their feet. He, he stunned them by revealing that one of the 12 w- would go on to betray Jesus. And then he lets them know that he must leave. And I've been trying to think of what, what would that be like to hear from Jesus who you've been with, who, who you, you believe is the king, believe is the Messiah, the savior world, that, that he's, he has to leave. And, and I was thinking about, is the closest I can come up with, a, a mom or a dad in the military that, that gets deployed and, and when they have to say goodbye to their family. And, and, and they say they're coming back, but you also know where they're going. And I can't imagine what it's like for a kid in that circumstance. So, so we hear Peter, he, he, he says, Lord, let me go with you. I can do it. I can go with you. I can handle it. I'll even lay down my life for you. And Jesus responds to him. He says, Peter, you can't go. You can't handle it. In fact, you're going to deny me three times before the night's done. It's understandable why the disciples are troubled, why they're fearful, why they're worried. But Jesus gives them multiple reasons in this passage to not be troubled, to instead trust in Jesus that what he has promised he will do. And and to trust what we know, what he's going to accomplish through the cross. So he gives these reasons to them not to be troubled on that night. and, And those reasons translate for us today. Whatever you're going through. Whatever you're going through, we can trust in Jesus. We have every reason to trust in Jesus. All the reasons Jesus gives are connected to belief. And John, over and over again, he he wants us to believe in Jesus, to trust in Jesus, to receive him as our Lord and Savior. 
Um, Jesus is leaving, but he tells them the solution to their trouble is faith in him. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. For them to have peace in the midst of great loss, the answer is faith in Christ. Faith in God, believing what Jesus has told them. Our truth statement for the today, it's already up there apparently. Um, it's, do not be troubled, but believe in Jesus as the way to the Father and do his works according to whatever you ask in his name. They're greatly troubled. Throughout this sermon, I won't say do not be troubled. Instead, I'll say be comforted by this that Jesus gives us. But, but we're not to be troubled. We're, we're, we're to be at peace. We're to have faith in Christ that that he's done what is necessary, and that in him even, we have work to do. Great, great works, and we'll do those in his name. So verse 1, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So prepare a place. What does he mean by that? All right, it's not like there's beds that Jesus needs to make for us. Or, or I doubt that, that the Father's house needs to be remodeled. It certainly doesn't need to be added on to. He says, my Father's house, there are many rooms. He doesn't need to spruce things up or remodel it. John Piper puts it that he needed to make a door so that people could get in. The Father's house is ready. The problem is we're a sinful people, and there's no entrance for sinners into the Father's house. Jesus needed to make the way for us to enter the Father's house, which we know Jesus did by the cross. Mere, mere hours after Jesus said these words, he'd be arrested, put on trial, and on his way to be crucified for our sin. So Jesus was preparing the place by dying so that we can have life in him. He went to the cross to make the entrance so that all the children of the Father could come to the Father's house. And I love this imagery here, that, that every believer has a room in the Father's house. It's not a guest house. It's not, it's not a hotel down the street. It's not an apartment above the garage. It's not even a cool Airbnb. We get a room in the Father's house. All of us, his adopted kids, are in the family. We're full-fledged family members. And we all get a room in the Father's house. So when Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, we can believe that. We can be comforted. And then he says that he's coming again. Verse 3 says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. So how do we know that he's coming back for his people? Well, because he went to prepare a place. It would make no sense at all. For him to go to the cross to prepare a place and not come back to gather his people. This is a sure promise that Jesus is coming back. And then notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I'll come again and I'll take you to heaven. Or I'll take you to my father's house. That is implied. But his focus is that he's taking his people to himself. He says, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. He didn't say, I'm going to drop you off. He says, I'll take you to myself. I hope that you can see, that you can grasp, that you can feel how much Jesus loves you. Right? That, that he wants you to be with him. I hope that, that you can get some security in knowing that he longs to be with you. He can't wait to gather his people. So if you've put your trust in Jesus, you will be with him. 
The last phrase in that verse, he says, where I am, you may be also. Heaven will be great. We, uh, we don't know tons about heaven, right? Scripture only reveals so much. So there are all kinds of details that, that we don't know. And, and it's hard to not imagine what heaven will be like. I'm, I'm guessing all of us to some degree have done that. There are a ton of books that imagine what heaven will be like. I'm not sure I'd recommend any of them to you. Um, a lot of them are pretty sketchy. Uh, a lot of them are not biblical. But for the most part, like, we don't know what heaven will be like. But what we do know is we'll be with our Creator. That, that we'll be in a perfectly reconciled relationship with God. So the disciples are troubled, and Jesus calls them to believe that, that what he says is true, including when he tells them that he will come back, that he is going to gather his people to himself, that we'll be with Jesus, the one who loves us. Revelation tells us that, that Jesus will come back. He'll gather all who've trusted in him. He'll make earth new. Heaven's going to come down to earth. God will dwell with his people. So the disciples, they're terrified. They're afraid they're going to be abandoned by Jesus. When in reality, Jesus was doing what was necessary to keep them forever with him. We don't know how close Jesus is to returning, but we do know that Jesus is coming for his people. Right? That is more certain than the person that you trust the most on this planet. More certain than, than, than the rising sun or gravity. More than anything you trust or anyone you trust. When he tells us he's coming to gather his people, you can bank on that. Not only does Jesus promise to come back, but if you've read this gospel, next week we'll get into Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit being given to each believer, the helper that will dwell in each believer, that we will have God's personal presence. You have God's personal presence in you, in the Holy Spirit, if you know him. So the disciples feel like Jesus is going to abandon them, and I wonder if you ever feel that way. If you're a Christian, do you ever feel that Jesus has left you? Like you've come knocking, and you find a door on the sign that says, gone, I'll be back later, be back soon. Do you ever feel like he's taken off, and you're left to deal with your troubles? Jesus says, believe me. Believe that what I'm doing, where I'm going, is for your benefit. Jesus leaving was for God's glory, and it was certainly for the disciples' good. It was for our good. And of course it would be, because our God is good. Everything he does is good. So I understand why they questioned, but this side of the cross, we can see that what Jesus was doing would be for their benefit. So be comforted that Jesus has prepared a place for you. No matter how hard this life is, Jesus has prepared a place for you, and be comforted that Jesus is coming again. He will gather you. If you know him and trust him, he's going to bring you to himself, and there'll be, there's no better place to be. Verse 4, he says, and you know the way I'm going. Thomas said to him, and, and Thomas gets a bad rap, right? We call him Doubting Thomas. Talked about an awesome nickname last week, the one whom Jesus loved. Doubting Thomas is a bummer of a biblical nickname. There probably could be worse. But, but what's great about Thomas, and, and I think we see this in Philip too, is they're all right with telling Jesus the things they don't understand. I'm not saying they always do, but, but they can tell him what they don't get, what they question, what, what just doesn't make sense to them. And, and I think... I think in a lot of churches and a lot of Christian rings, we feel like we've got to know everything. We've got to have all the answers. And I hope that this is a place 
where, where you can go, I, mean, I don't get it. I'm struggling with this. I'm doubting this. Jesus responds to his disciples. And sometimes it's hard, right? Sometimes it's maybe even harsh. I'm not saying it's not hard. But, but man, they knew. And they wanted, they wanted to know. They wanted to know the truth. So he says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Thomas is clueless, right? He, he, he tells Jesus that. Thomas should have known, but he and the other disciples, to a certain degree, they have this blindness. Like They, they can see, but it's like it's, it's veiled, and they, they can't see everything that Jesus is saying. They can't see fully who Jesus is yet. They understand some of what Jesus has told them, but not nearly the amount as readers that we expect them to know. It's curious that Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. Because as readers, it seems really clear. He's explained who the Father is over and over again in the gospel. Like the disciples should understand that. So, so then it seems like there should be no confusion. Verses 2 and 3, he's clearly speaking about the Father's house. He's got to be talking about going to be with the Father as the destination. So it feels strange that somehow Thomas doesn't understand where he's going and therefore the way to get to where he's going. So Thomas and probably the other disciples, they haven't come to grips with where Jesus is headed. Verse 6, Jesus said to him, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus shifts from the way that he must go, which is to the cross. He shifts it to the way the disciples must go, which is to himself, to Jesus. They don't understand where he's going. So Jesus tells them, you got to come to me. He's the way they need to go. He's the truth that they must know and trust. He's the life-giving source. Jesus is very clear in this passage and, and in other passages like it that he is the exclusive way, that, that he is the truth, that he's the only source of life. And our culture right now, I mean, we feel it. We, we feel how much our culture hates that exclusivity. And the temptation is for us to somehow soften the gospel, to make it more palatable. But we're doing no one a favor when we do that. And we certainly are not honoring Jesus. We have to be clear that Jesus isn't just a really good way or the best way, but that Jesus is the way. We're comforted that Jesus is the way, that we're not left to guess that Jesus is the way and that he's made it clear that he's the way. That in him we can know truth absolutely. That in him we have life. John Stott said the way of Jesus is the cross. The way of his disciples is Jesus. It's not surprising that the early Christians in Acts chapter 9 verse 2 were called followers of the way. That's how, that's how they were identified. Verse 7 in John 14. He said, if you'd known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him, and you've seen him. And in verses 7 through 11 here, Jesus is going to say in, in different ways, really similar thing. Right? That, that there's this mutual indwelling between the Father and the Son. That if you see Jesus, you see the Father. That if you know Jesus, you know the Father. If you've heard the words of Jesus, you've heard the very words of the Father. If you've seen the works of Jesus, you've seen the works of of the Father, and this should give great comfort that if you've come to know Jesus, you have come to know the Father. 
One commentator wrote, what they must understand is that this knowledge of Jesus is the entree to true knowledge of the Father. In some ways, the disciples know a fair amount about Jesus. They've been with Jesus for three years. And if they know Jesus, then they know the Father. So they know the Father more than they realize. To the degree that they know Jesus, they know the Father. At the same time, we know the story. They're about to rapidly grow in their knowing, in their understanding of who Jesus is after his death, resurrection, and ascension. The growth curve is going to take off for them in the next hours and days. This is probably what Jesus means when he says, from now on you do know him and have seen him. They think highly of Jesus, but they still don't grasp that through knowing Jesus, they truly know the Father. Verse 8, Philip chimes in. He said, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough. Philip the disciples, they don't get it. And it's understandable. They're monotheists, okay, meaning that they believe in one God. So for them, a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is really far out there. Like, it's really hard for them to grasp this. But the, the, as they hear Jesus speak, they're hearing God himself speak. Right? It's hard for them to understand that Jesus is, is the perfect revelation of the Father, that he's the perfect self-disclosure of God. So Philip asked to see the Father, and I think this is probably a request that a lot of us can relate to. Like, like maybe you've prayed before, God, if you would just show me, if you just show me yourself, then I could believe, then, I, then my faith would be stronger. Or maybe you've prayed that for someone. God, would you just show this person I love that you are real? Moses asked to see God, Exodus 33. Right? He, he asked to see the full splendor of God. He said, show me your glory. And God permitted him to see just this glimpse of his glory because Moses could not have handled it. But in Jesus, the glory of the Father is on full display. John tells us that right away in chapter 1, verse 14 of chapter 1. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then a few verses later in verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. It is absolutely miraculous that the Father made a way for man to see him in Jesus and to live to tell about it. John 12, 45, Jesus said, Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. So there's nothing wrong with Philip wanting to see the Father. There's nothing wrong with that request. The problem is thinking that Jesus is anything less than the Father. Jesus responds to him, in verse 9, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? I could be wrong here, but to me it feels like there's some sadness in Jesus' response. How have you been with me for three years? You still don't know me, Philip. It's one thing for the crowds to not know Jesus, but these are Jesus' closest human relationships. These men have done virtually everything with him for the last three years. Up until Jesus coming in the flesh, no one had seen the Father. Moses caught a glimpse, but no one had seen the Father. In John 6, 46, Jesus said, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, so Jesus. Um, he has seen the Father. So only Jesus had seen the Father, and then he came revealing the Father to the world. So Jesus is not off in thinking that they should know him by now. To some degree, like I said, they're, 
they're blind to who Jesus is. But in seeing Jesus, they should know that he's just like the Father because he and the Father are one. Verse 10, 11, he continues to bring this home. Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and that the Father's in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or else on account of the works themselves, believe. So through the gospel of John, he, he's driving us, he's urging us to believe, to believe in Jesus, to put our faith in Jesus. And in believing in Jesus, we believe in the Father. Jesus describes this mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son over and over again as he does here. But their understanding, the disciples' understanding is dim still at this point. And it won't be after, until after he raises from the dead that the disciples will really understand who Jesus is. But Jesus pleads with them, believe. He isn't just saying, trust in me. One commentator wrote that it could be translated, believe what I just said. Believe what I just said about this mutual indwelling of the Son and the Father. So if the words of Jesus are from the Father and the works come from the Father who lives in him, then what they hear and see are the revealing of the Father through Jesus. He says, believe in the works. If you don't believe me, believe the works. And this is not the first time Jesus has said this in this gospel. He said it to the crowds. He said, at least believe the works. And now he's saying it to his own disciples. And the works don't just show that Jesus has some supernatural power. It isn't even just simply evidence that he is transcendent. But all the miracles are pictures of the saving kingdom of God. John Stott writes, the miracles are nonverbal Christological signposts. Right? They're, they're these signposts pointing to Jesus. For the third time in this gospel, John says, uh, at least look at the works so you can see that they point to Jesus as the Savior. The miracles are evidence that the saving work of God's kingdom are at work in Jesus himself. So we can be comforted that if you know Jesus, you know God the Father. Verse 12, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. And there's a link between 11 and 12 there. In 11, he says, believe on account of the works. And then in verse 12, he said, believers will do these works. Right? Believers will do the works. So 11 helps us understand a little bit what the works are. The works help point people to Jesus so that they'll believe. Matthew 5.16, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. All who believe in Jesus are to be signposts pointing to the way of Jesus. This is something that's for all believers in Jesus, that we all should enjoy this fruitfulness of works. This doesn't just apply to the apostles. It doesn't just apply to missionaries or pastors or deacons and deaconesses or ministry leaders or whatever. Not even just the longtime saints, right? This is even for brand new Christians. Jesus talks about a fruitfulness that every believer should participate in and experience. So, so what are the works? They point to Jesus, but what are they? If all believers are to do these works, it, it can't be that these works are exclusively miraculous works or healing works like we might think of when we're looking at the Gospel of John. Paul certainly didn't understand the gifts that way. In 1 Corinthians 12, 
He says, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret. No. God hasn't made the body so that every believer possesses every gift or, or that all believers possess the same gifts. By design, there's a variety in how he's gifted the body. And God knows what he's doing in giving each of us gifts for the benefit of the body. So these works can't just be miraculous works like we might think of, but the works certainly are how we live our lives and point to Jesus. If we think back to chapter 13, Jesus tells the disciples after he washes their feet, they will know that you're my disciples by the way you love one another, the way you serve one another. So how you live, how I live, should point to Jesus in a way that combined with gospel words, a person could come to believe in Christ. And then it's interesting, at the end of that verse he says, because I'm going to the Father, I think this is a really helpful clue for us as, as to what the greater works are, so hold on to that. But the greater works, what does he mean by you'll do greater works? Jesus says a lot of things that, that come off as uh, wild, maybe crazy. Um, my guess is none of you in the room feel like you're going to do greater works than Jesus. If Jesus didn't say this, we wouldn't believe it. So what does he mean? Some people theorize that he means more works. So by greater works, he means like greater quantity of works, that, that Jesus' public ministry only lasted three years. There's only so much a person could do in three years on earth, even if you're Jesus. So that compared to millions of believers over time, that they would certainly as a collective produce more works. But the Greek language had better ways to say more. That Jesus isn't talking about a greater quantity of works. And greater works can't be more spectacular either. How's someone going to outdo Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead? Right? You're not going to outdo Jesus walking on water. You're not going to outdo feeding the 5,000. So greater works certainly isn't more spectacular or supernatural. It's not greater in quantity. So let's go back to that first clue. He says, because I'm going to the Father. So, so somehow the greater works... Are, it's necessary that, that Jesus goes to the Father for these greater works to happen. It's the basis for the greater works. Another clue comes from chapter 5, verse 20 in this gospel. Jesus says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all, uh, and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show them so that they may marvel. The end goal of Jesus' signs and works pointed to the life that he would give because of his death and resurrection. But those could not be fully seen or understood before his death and resurrection. So the signs and wonders were somewhat veiled before the cross. Because Jesus goes to the Father, he will have, as Gary said this week, downloaded his power to them from his death and resurrection through the Holy Spirit. His followers would perform works that point to the death and resurrection of Jesus and therefore the way for sinners to be forgiven. The greater works are people being reconciled to God through Jesus' death and resurrection. And it's an incredible privilege to be a part of someone trusting Jesus, of someone giving their life to Jesus. I don't know if, if you've gotten to be a part uh, of, of leading someone to Christ uh, I love my kids. I think you guys know that. I, talk, I probably talk from the pulpit too much about my kids. I, I love my kiddos. Uh, being there for the, for the birth 
of my kids was incredible. I think I cried every time. There are three that were, it's hard to remember by the time you get to third, but I think I cried every time when my kids were born. Our youngest, Maddie, is adopted. I didn't get to be there for her birth. But it, absolutely incredible. I was nervous as I'll get out. I didn't know if I could handle it. But to be in the room as my kids were born it was an amazing thing to, to see life enter to the end of the world. It's even more incredible, though, to be a part of rebirth. And that's a crazy statement that, that I would say I loved my, my kids being born. But man, to, to see... To be near someone coming to know Jesus is even more incredible. I'll never forget my friend Mike. We were seniors in high school. And I, uh, I, I bumped into him moments after he decided to follow Jesus. Right? He, he'd heard about Jesus. A lot, of, a lot of people were probably annoying in some ways, but a lot of people were telling about Jesus. A lot of people, we'd been praying for a while for Mike to come to know Jesus. And I just happened to bump into him moments after he decided to trust Jesus and he told me and I, I couldn't believe it I, I don't I don't know I, I just I wanted it to happen I thought it might happen but I didn't know and I, I I was speechless in that moment it was such a privilege to be near my friend who now had been reborn it's an incredible privilege to be a part of people coming to know Christ to, to be a part of people finally believing in him. To this day, Jesus' followers participate in people coming to put their faith in Jesus. We get to be a part of people coming to know the saving truth that Jesus came and died to forgive all who would trust in him. And Jesus has entrusted the church. We're, we're the vehicle for that to happen. We're to go out and make disciples everywhere, all nations, are to know about Jesus. We get to be a part of that. We'll read this next week. We don't do this alone. We, do this, we don't do this under our own power, but we do this in full dependence on God by the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, he says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is not a verse that gets you a Ferrari if you ask in Jesus' name. Okay? This verse is connected to the kingdom works. That's what we're talking about here, okay? That, that all believers are to do. And he tells the disciples, you pray, you, you come to me, you ask me. We're to ask in the name of Jesus for works to be done, for people to see and hear about Jesus. For Jesus to open doors for, for us to speak the gospel, to have conversations with people that don't yet know him and trust him. So this is, this is for churches like us. This is for students, for moms, for teachers, for business people, grandparents, singles, retirees, widows, children. And we're to ask in his name, and he's going to give us what we need to do his kingdom works. Are we asking? Are we asking for his kingdom works, or do I just pray about my own little kingdom? Are you asking Jesus to open hearts of people that you know? Jesus has already done the heavy lifting. He's done everything necessary. necessary. We know that he wants his works to be accomplished. We should have confidence that he will do just as he has promised. Let's pray together.
Jesus, I, I thank you. I thank you that no matter what's going on, we don't have to be troubled. We can choose to continue to be troubled, or we can, we can believe in you. And, and, and I know that's hard, Lord. I don't say that flippantly. I know, I know it's hard to trust. And God, I also know you've given us your Holy Spirit. I also know that when it's hard to trust, I think you're, you're just inviting us to come in closer, to come in deeper, Lord. So I pray that for my brothers and sisters in Christ, that, that we would have confidence, that we would have comfort, that we would, we would have a faith that triumphs our fears, that we would be so grateful that we have a secure place with you, Lord, that you are coming back, that Jesus, in knowing you, we know the Father, that there's no doubt about who God is and how good he is. Lord, will you help us as a church, as a body of believers, will you help us to be a people that long to do works that point to you? Lord, could we be signposts that point to you really, really clearly, Jesus? Lord, I pray that, that each person in this room would long to lead someone else to you, Lord, would long to get to be a part of a rebirth, Lord. Jesus, we, we love you. Holy Spirit, we're grateful that you are with us, that you are in us, and we pray. We pray, Lord, that we would bring glory to you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Um, the prayer team is going to be in the back for you. If you'd like prayer for anything, please uh, go back and receive prayer. It could be, it could be something from, from one of the songs or the sermons today. It could be something that has nothing to do with that. Maybe life is falling apart. Maybe you hear, don't be troubled, and you're like, I don't have a clue how to not be troubled. I don't know how to trust Jesus. We've got people back there that would love to pray for you. And you don't even have to tell them the story. You can just say, help, <laughs> just pray for me, and they'll do that. Or you can tell them the story too. It's up to you. During these next songs, we're going to take communion together. And as I said last week, this is, this is a meal that Jesus has given his followers. So if you have put your faith in Jesus, if you've trusted Jesus as your Lord to save you from sin, please come and participate in, in this meal. If you're right with your brothers and sisters, there's nothing between you and them. Come and participate in this meal. You can come and get the elements, take them back to your seat, and then take them whenever you're ready.